0: Today we are meeting with a special guest. This is the first time that we've had a male to grace us with his presence. And I am honored to have Donald Spears, board certified human services professional and NOHS member joining us today. Don Spears will speak to us about how his personal story shaped not only his career choices, but the people around him. As an online service-based entrepreneur, it's important to remember that the people you are called to serve are in some way connected to your own personal story. Don will share his personal story of childhood illness through the lens of family systems theory. He even eases a few of the insecurities that I have had as a human services professional in the coaching and business industry. No money, no mission is something Don understands. He sheds light on why business is an important element of human services. Welcome to Soulfully Aligned You, mindset and strategy for multi-passionate mompreneur coaches and creatives. This is the podcast where we talk about and teach confident mindsets overcoming limiting beliefs at the subconscious level and online brand strategies to help you build out your signature services, get more visible with your target audience, and boldly launch out in the online world with your God-given gifts. I believe God cares more about your soul than your success. So get in alignment with his will and what he thinks of you so you can activate the success he already has planned for you. So I just want to say thank you, Don, for um, taking me up on this podcast um, interview. And I want to share with our audience that um, this interview is part selfish. Like I told you, I would share with everyone because I see you as a mentor in the field of human services. And Rightfully so. I looked at all the little acronyms and then you had me going searching and I was like, what does all this mean? You know? (laughs) (laughs) So I graduated with my master's in human service counseling back in 2013. And I've been very like disconnected from my people. (laughs) So God actually laid it on my spirit. He was like, go do some research, go look, go see the people in your industry, see what they're doing, connect with them. And we had, I reached out to you about a year ago. And we were doing some i was asking about the organization knows I hope i said that right yeah. and uh, we lost connection which is okay there you know that's it happens sometimes especially in this fast-paced world that we live in everyone's going so fast we just lost connection and it was awesome that your your name or the email it just dropped back in my spirit and i was like oh my gosh let me reach back out and see how things are going and then from there it led to this because had we connected a year ago, I don't think I was actually into the podcast as much as i as I am now. Mm-hmm. So there was a reason for us to connect, and I'm gonna share this part, but i'm gonna say I'm gonna say a part of it, but I hope it sparks a memory of something you shared with me. because um, this podcast is for mompreneurs. It is for a multi-passionate, high achieving women of faith, and oftentimes, They step into motherhood and then we are like, oh gosh, what are we gonna do? (laughs) Now, you know, I'm a mom. I may have these like six to 12 weeks to stay home with my kid, but then I'm supposed to go back to work. And what is that gonna look like? Or do I even wanna go back to work? Or do I wanna stay home? And I found myself in that position um, shortly after getting my bachelor's degree in psychology. And it was one of those things where I did go into the field. I was a um, mental health coach. I was doing that, was working with the youth, and I found that I was spending a little bit more time with other people's children than my own. I was getting home late in the evening times, and I only had one child at the time, and my husband was military. So, active duty and, you know, their schedule is supposed to be way more hectic than ours, but mine was more hectic than his, you know? And I just felt so bad. So I had to actually pump the brakes for a while, take a break. And I I felt the need to stay home with my daughter and to try to chart a new path, right? I still love the field of psychology, human services, the helping services and it was one of those things where I had to kind of navigate how I was gonna get back in to the industry. So um, I've, I know that you shared something with me on when we first met and I thought how cool that you have been a stay at home dad too. So do you wanna share some of that with us or how that unfolded?
1: Sure. Um, I have had a, a number of different trajectories in my career, and as I was finishing up uh, my more clinical side before I moved into academics, my, my son was young, my wife was already in academics, and she was working toward tenure, which anybody in academics knows that that's a, a really Um, difficult time while you're you're teaching a ton you're publishing you're doing all sorts of things and she was just working so hard and I knew that I wanted to make a change in my own career and my son had some special needs and he had been going to the uh daycare center at her college and we just decided that that was not working for him and based upon you know the the great opportunity that she had to work toward earning tenure and me feeling as though I was in a transition and my experience and training I just decided you know my son needs a little more time he needs someone that he's got a connection to and who's got some training so we're done with the the daycare centers and babysitters so i took 2 years off and stayed home with my son and gained a whole new respect for stay-at-home mothers and now uh, at a community college we have a lot of Uh, women who are returning to campus, they're single mothers, sometimes have a a couple of kids and they're working full-time while going to school. And I was just staying home and uh, teaching part-time and it was hard enough for me. And, you know, I had some of the the more traditional old-fashioned views and kind of thought, oh, well, must be nice to stay home. And I got quite an education from that. But it also created a tremendous bond between me and my son that even though he's 21 now, uh, the two of us are so very, very close, and I'm really grateful uh, for that opportunity and that uh, I decided to do that. So it, it really gives me a, a different perspective on, on motherhood or, or parenthood, I'd prefer to call it.
0: Yes. I love that you say parenthood because um, I definitely see that both, you know, the mother and the father, they're so important. And I think just on certain stereotypes, you know, it sometimes comes across as it's, it's the mom's job. And then there's all this pressure because mom still wants to have a career. She still wants to feel like she's more than a mom, you know? So I love that you have that experience and you have that heart and you have that perspective. And I want to share that with our um, audience today. So I know that I was really interested in interviewing you and learning more about your story. A part of um, Soulfully Aligned You is that people are really I should say, moms are really able to step into the career, step into a business, step into the, their calling, right? And for it to be truly aligned with their, their gifting, their talents, their experiences, um, giving them the opportunity to serve. And I think that's really important. So when I think of human services and thinking of you being in the field, I was really curious and wanting to know what got you into the industry? What's your story behind why you're in the human services field?
1: Well, as your title suggests, it's a, a very personal um, experience that brings people to a career like this. And I always have my freshman students. I share my story with them and then as comfortable as they are, at the very beginning of our relationship, I have them share their stories as well. And in the 15 years that I've been in academics, I've never had anybody just say, I thought it would be interesting to do this. It's always for very personal reasons. And for me myself, you know, I my story starts when I was a young teenager and I'd been a sickly child. I was very underweight. Um, I'd eat breakfast and wait for the school bus and I couldn't hold my breakfast down. And I just kept getting taller, but never gained any weight. And then it got to a point where I would get taller and lose weight. And we tried seeing the local um, family doctors and they were just stymied. And I do have to say that this was in the early 1980s when all of this got started. And so the technology as far as treatment and diagnoses are not what they are today. So they were all just completely lost as far as what to do with me and they did at our local hospital a uh, barium x-ray and they looked at my digestive system and it just lit up so that type of test does not give you detail it just lights up when something's a mess and my doctor came and saw me, I was in the hospital. And he said, you need to get down to Riley Children's Hospital immediately. And for those not from Indiana, Riley is the Children's Hospital associated with Indiana University. It's in uh, Indianapolis, which is about a two and a half to three hour drive from where we live. And You know, I asked, can I go home? Can I sleep a night in my bed? Because to me at that point, you know, I'd been in the hospital for two and a half weeks and that seemed like a long time. And he said, No, you need to go now. So it was nighttime and they offered us an ambulance but my parents drove me down. And I got there in the middle of the night and in the morning I was shaken awake by a doctor who introduced himself. And he said, I am a pediatric oncologist. And at the time I did not know what that was. I just was clueless. And I said, well, what kind of a doctor is that? And he said, well, I deal with uh, children who have cancer. And you're very, very ill. And you know, obviously, you know, when you are struck with something like that, it's just such a a traumatic experience. You hear the word cancer, and it's like you don't hear anything else. But he said, We're gonna schedule a surgery for you. We need to build you up a little bit because you're you're very weak right now. And we're gonna operate on you next week, but in the, the time between now and then, we want your family to come down and see you. Because what we're doing with this surgery is we're going to remove as much of the cancer in your digestive system as we can so that we can get you as much time as we can. And even at that age, I figured out that that meant I've got a terminal diagnosis and and my family's going to come down to see me for the last time. So they all made a caravan down, you know, grandmas and aunts and uncles and, you know, everybody came down and they spent a day with me and everybody did their best at being upbeat and Um, I remember it being a a happy time so they did a good job you know of, of keeping my spirits up and then it was probably the next day and I had my surgery and I found myself as I was coming out slowly of the anesthetic my doctor from Northwest Indiana had driven down to Indianapolis to see me and he was shaking me awake and you know I'm of course very groggy and not understanding and he said you need to wake up I've got really good news but also some bad news and I believe my parents were there as well and he said, the good news is you don't have cancer and you're not gonna die anytime soon. And, you know, we we're all of course happy about that. But then he said, I've also got some very difficult news for you. You've got an illness that is chronic. We've got no cure for it. The treatments that we have are not particularly effective, you will have some periods of time where you're relatively healthy. But you will have several periods in your life where you are very ill as you just were. And you'll probably have more surgeries and it could very well have an impact on your lifespan. And, you know, I took in as much as I could in that state, you know, just waking up from surgery, but after I was more alert, um, he was still there and my family was there and we talked it through and they found out, they diagnosed me on the operating table as having Crohn's disease, which anybody who watches TV these days, you've all heard of Crohn's disease because they've got the medication commercials on every time there's a commercial break. So even if you don't know what it is, you know that it's an illness and they've got treatments. And what it is, is it's an autoimmune disease that attacks your digestive system. And I had a, what they call a bowel resection. So they removed a significant portion of my uh, large and small intestine and then uh, reconnected. And they needed to rest my digestive system. So I was being fed very high calorie, nutrients through an IV in my jugular vein. So I was in the hospital that initial time for three months, and they just kept pumping in the nutrients. And uh, at the time, I was five feet, eight and weighed 80 pounds. And their initial goal was to get me up to 100 pounds before they discharged me. But even taking in all the nutrients that they could, you know, there's a limitation on how much they can do without doing damage to your veins. And it was just taking a, a ridiculous amount of time. So they got me up to 90 pounds and they discharged me. And I went home. And the treatments at the time were mega doses of prednisone, which is a steroid with really bad side effects, tremendous weight gain. And um, I had also, which is very common with high doses of steroids, uh, psychiatric um, side effects. So I had, I'm a very gentle person, and I had these wild, angry outbursts. And I also had uh, steroid-induced psychoses. I was convinced that my house was haunted. And every, if it was dark and I would drive past my house, I could see in the picture window, there were all these monsters and, and devils that were waiting for me. And I felt like there was a, a big cloud over my house. And it was these steroids because I was on tremendous doses because the only other option was more surgery so i was home for probably three weeks or so and i had this tremendous pain in my abdomen and i was diagnosed as having a bowel obstruction due to the scar tissue and complications from the surgery so it was an emergency, I was rushed back down to Indianapolis, they did another bowel resection, and I had a significant stay there again, and came home. And, you know, as a, a, a young person, and I think it's a tendency that people in general have, you experience something very traumatic, and you really look just from your own experience. You are aware of your own suffering and your trauma and your fears. And at the time, you know, I spent my 14th birthday in the hospital. So I was pretty young. You're still figuring out who you are at that age, as we really kind of are throughout our lifespan, but definitely when you're 13, 14 years old. So I I was well aware of what I was going through. But as time went by, I started to reflect back on my family. And I started asking questions about what was going on while I was in the hospital. Because I was, you know, two to three hours away from my family. And being a children's hospital, they had arrangements, and they still do, where a parent can stay in the room with their child when they're sick. And I come from a blue-collar background. Both of my parents worked in uh, factories. But at that time, uh, my mother was a, a housekeeper. She quit her job, and she stayed all those months at the hospital with me. And my father, uh, he worked at the steel mills in Northwest Indiana. And as much as we complain about insurance now, and we still do have a lot of progress to make in insurance, back then, he had some of the best insurance that there was, but it only paid 80%. So 20% 20% of all the bills came out of pocket. And you can only imagine, even in the 80s, spending months and months in a critical care hospital like that, what that must have cost. So when, when he was there and my mother was with me, in order to keep us from going bankrupt, He was an hourly employee and he worked every hour that he possibly could. So he was either sleeping or working. And I've got a younger brother. He's a year and two months younger than me. And I started asking questions about what happened with him. And my grandparents had just a couple years before retired and they'd built themselves their dream house on the lake uh, on the other side of the state. And when all of this happened, they put their dog in a kennel, locked up the house, left everything, came and they stayed with my brother. And what I found out is you know, with with my brother having his, his uh, older brother, and we were close in age, and we were close um, socially as well, because we we grew up together. And it was the two of us were like the two musketeers. And when I asked later on what he did, what my grandparents told me is that when he wasn't at school, he was basically in his bedroom with the door closed with music turned up loud. So as I, as I matured and was able to look at perspectives other than my own, I really realized how much a traumatic experience like what I went through impacted much more than just me and, you know, my having to go back to school and keep up with my grades and, you know, trying to get a girlfriend at that age with all that illness and everything. It was all very difficult, but It was just as difficult in different ways for everybody in my social world, my family, my friends. I had friends from school who, because they were uh, frightened of the illness and we didn't know a lot about it at the time, I lost some friends because they didn't wanna catch it. And it's not contagious. And I had uh, girls that uh, I was interested in and were interested in me, and they said, you know what? And they confessed years later, I, I did not pursue or, or encourage a relationship with you because I thought, well, what if we had kids one day and they had this horrible illness? So it it influenced my friends. And then, you know, I was thinking about mom. She's going through all this trauma secondhand, watching her son go through so much pain and long recoveries. She's there 24 seven. Her husband is her number one source of support. He's across the state working, you know, constantly. He is removed from everything that's going on because he's continually working. My brother is, you know, kind of adrift and is off to the side, in effect, you know, unintentionally, because all the mm-hmm. attention is elsewhere. And my grandparents are not living the type of retirement that they thought that they would. So it really yeah. got me thinking, as a systems perspective, and that influenced the trajectory of my career tremendously.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow. Thank you for sharing just your story with us, because that's, that's a difficult, like, journey. It's a lot of pain involved, and but like I always say, you know, we we go through the pain, we go through the traumas, right, and then we can find beauty on the other side of it. There um, is an author that I really love. His name is um, Kurt Thompson. I think I shared him with you the last time we chatted, and he has a book called The Soul of Shame, The Soul of Desire, and he goes into um, talking about the trauma that we experience and something that, something beautiful about your experience is that you're able to look at it outside of yourself and outside of what you, were, what you were going through. Cause like you I mean, you're the one that had to go through the surgeries and get that news and it was your body that was being affected and all of that. But you were able to shift your perspective and see, okay, how is this affecting the people around me? right? What impact Mm -hmm. is it having on the people around me? And I think that the the people in our audience, um, they're generally trying to find their own calling. They're person-centered, right? Like we're looking at ourselves and how we can do better and how we can grow and how we can reach actualization and all of that. But I think it's so important if we Sometimes we have to stop looking at self in order to really get to the other side of it, to get to beauty and start to see how, okay, how is how did my story or my experience truly impact others around me? What effect did it have on others around me? And that's when we can truly um, step into more of that servanthood and be, become a servant to those around us. And I really believe that's what our calling is, is that we are serving others and it just so happens that our degree is you know is human services (laughs) right you know and i really didn't even make that connection um years ago because the coaching stuff has been going on for me since what 2016 and i'm always like you're a servant you're a servant when you go into business for yourself you're serving others you're really supposed to be looking at business and the services you create the programs you create all of that should be through the lens of serving people But how can we do that if we don't really stop looking at ourselves? It's almost like you could have been a victim in your situation Mm -hmm. and just said, "What was me, this is what I'm going to this is what my life is going to look like. I know you even shared part of the prognosis of kind of like what the doctor was telling you about. Well, looks like life is over for you. And I mean, we can just see see now, right? Like just the impact that you're creating in the classroom every day with your students. Like, no, life wasn't over. It was not over for you. You have so much to give. And I'm sure every time a student gets to sit in your class and hear your story, they take something away from that. And I love that you invite the students to think about their personal story because it's gonna inform their career, it's gonna inform how they serve, whether they do that through entrepreneurship, whether they do it through um, representing an organization, um, a private sector, whatever it is, they're going to take their, just your invite to have them think about their personal stories. They're gonna take that with them and understand how that story is playing a role in how they serve. And that is that's just beautiful to me i I love that I think that all of us can afford to take some time <laughs> to think about our lives, the things that we've gone through because sometimes we can be in a, a career a relationship something where we're not feeling peace or we don't feel like this is where we're supposed to be and we kind of want some movement or we want to see transformation and Being able to, like you said, just shift that perspective and see how your own story, the things that you've gone through, how they affect others. And it might just, like, blossom this new creative idea on how you can serve, even if it's through volunteering. I know for me, for a long time, like, when I was struggling with, like, what direction am I going to go? Where is my life leading me? I volunteered for years. I volunteered in the homeschool industry, I've volunteered with military spouses, um, FRGs, family readiness groups with the military. All of that, and even those experiences have shaped and truly built, like how I show up and how I serve um, within my within my business. So, what do you what do you think is the um, The greatest takeaway that you want your students, when you tell that story or they hear that story, like our audience has heard today, what is the greatest takeaway that you want people to um, get from that story?
1: Well, I think that it has value all the way from not just an individual person's story, but up to a, a societal and international level. And I'm not using hyperbole with that, but every action has got a reaction and nobody lives in a vacuum. Whether things good or bad happen to you, they not only have an influence on you, but they have an influence on the people around you. So if you're going into human services to work on a micro level and you've got the client who comes in and they've got their presenting problem, most of us know that the presenting problem and the real problem are not often the same thing. The presenting problem will be a symptom of the real problem. and what we need to do to best treat the individual is try to include as many of the important people in their lives as well. And you look at substance abuse, which is such a a problem in our society. We had previously had the and some people still have the stereotype of it's just an inner city thing. But It is, it's in every community and people don't just wake up and decide, you know what, I want to take heroin. You know, it starts off as something smaller and as often as something legitimate, like a a physical medical problem, and you get a prescription for that. And then the prescription goes away, you've become addicted, and then you Uh, in order to avoid the tremendous pain of withdrawal, you go and you find alternative sources, which leads to heroin. And, you know, there are other reasons why people um, turn to substances. You know, you look at communities that uh, their, their source of income has gone away because of a change in, uh, you know, economic policy and so forth. We've got a, a huge problem in the Rust Belt areas, as well as in Appalachia and places where people made their living in the coal mills. And there was just an assumption that, You know, I don't even have to graduate high school. I can go and get myself a job in the mill or in the the mines, and I've got it made. And those jobs are gone. And it decimates entire communities. So rather than just looking at the individual and judging them and saying, oh, what a horrible person, only... uh, uh, a troubled individual or a a bad person would ever do something like that, you have to consider the circumstances and what surrounds them. And it's a lesson that you learn in human services social working, and certainly in sociology, that larger outside forces impact the decisions and the lives of individual people. And, you know, conversely, if you do good, the things that we do can be multiplied. So one person who makes it their mission to do something good in the world can leave such a very large footprint. And that's what I tell my students as part of the reason why I left the clinical side and got into the academic side. Because certainly as a clinician, I could help individual clients as they would come to see me but my realm of influence was rather limited by the number of clients that I could see. But as an educator, I'm training new generations of helpers, all of whom are gonna have their circle of clients. So the number of people that I and others in human services education can impact even indirectly but through our teaching and our mentoring of others is so much larger. And that's really important. I think everybody as we try to find the meaning in our lives need to try to find what we want to make our mission and what we want to leave the world after we're gone. And I think that it's so important. So this systems idea that I'm talking about is really important, obviously in a clinical setting, but in an economic, political, and international level as well. We can do so much good if we look at not just individuals and see the bigger picture.
0: Yes. Oh, that's so powerful. I'll say this: um, when reaching out to you, I was—I had already felt disconnected, you know, from human services because I was like, "Oh, I'm not in the mental health field as far working with youth. I'm not um, implementing the treatment plans that the therapists have come up with. Like, I'm not doing that piece. So, can I really consider myself? Am I still a human services professional?" And when you started talking about systems and looking at things outside of just the individual, it it really spoke to me because I was like, wow, that's what I do with my clients, you know, even though they're entrepreneurs and yes, they want um, more clients, they want to make more money, blah, blah, blah. That's the presenting issue. But what's the real thing going on beneath that, right? (laughs) So I'm always looking at the deeper things like, the confidence level. I'm looking at some shame issues. I'm looking at um, insecurities. Um, and those things tend to stem from how they grew up. <laughs> so maybe it's how their family treated them, or how um, certain habits that their families had. A lot of it stems, um, even from like money mindset, where they don't want to charge a certain rate, or they want to just keep giving their services away, and they feel um, guilty about charging, and they don't really have. Um, this understanding of stewarding money well, where did that come from, right? We go into their money story and who all's involved in that and how their parents handled money. So I tend to look at things from that systems point of view of like, what are all the influences that were going on in your life that are affecting why you're at, where you're at today? Right. Why you feel like you're stuck or why you feel like you can't keep moving forward or why you feel like you can't show up for yourself, those type of things. And I even look at generational things. There are some things that are generational. Right. So um, I definitely love what you shared about the presenting problem is not always the real problem because it, it rings true for uh, my target audience, which is entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, who I in turn see them as creating impact through the programs and services that they're creating. Mm-hmm. So I just find myself in a similar situation where I'm like, if I can help this, this one woman to show up in her confidence and to get rid of the shame, get rid of the guilt, get rid of all these um, limiting beliefs and all that kind of stuff, the thing that she's creating, if she can get it out there, it will touch the masses and it'll touch more people. So I get to see that impact just kind of like trickle out. Um, Even through my certification program, it is one that is trauma informed. I want Mm -hmm. coaches and those that are in the online space, I want them to understand that it's not not a Band-Aid. Like we're not just trying to put a Band-Aid on um, whatever issues, be it weight issues, relationship issues, um, love and romance issues. Cause my, um, the people that are in my circle, they are relationship coaches, um, health coaches. Um, I think we have someone in the circle that helps blended families like blended family. They, they go in and they help with those type of things. So I just think it's awesome. It's a lot of transformational, coaching type work, but it's happening in an online type program. So something you said, you talked about the realm of influence, right? Where you were just doing the one-on-one in the office, you felt like it was limited. The cool thing about you know the digital world and all of that is that we don't have to be limited, especially with the courses, Stuff just what we're doing here today, right? Mm-hmm. This podcast episode, um, where it's live on Facebook. I've seen people popping in and out of the live stream. We have a guest with us, um, here, and we'll open up the floor for her to ask questions shortly. Um, and it'll be out into the atmosphere for so many people <laughs> to listen and hear. So I think it's beautiful that we're not limited, that we can take, you know, some of these solutions or perspectives and we can put them and package them up into these digital um, products be it a masterclass or a course or whatever and we can um, impact more lives. So that's, that's what makes me excited. I love um, helping my clients to even design those type of programs, right? Like designing the actual curriculum for what's going out. I think it's, it's pretty cool. But yes, when you talk about the systems, oh, go on, I'm sorry. That's okay.
1: (laughs) There there were a couple of points that I wanted to touch on based upon um, what you were just saying, because you mentioned how a lot of people in human services and the helping professions feel guilty about charging their clients. And that's something that has been rooted in history. And I think because our profession is predominantly uh, staffed by females, and we've got a long history of, well, women's work does not have as much value and they're gonna be taken care of by a man. I think that's part of why K through 12 teachers, especially elementary are not paid what they should be paid as the the Mm -hmm. highly trained professionals that they are. But you can still be a helper and make a good living. And that does not make you selfish. And when I was an undergraduate, my minor was in business. And so I learned a lot from that and I took a class in entrepreneurship. So the first thing that I wanna say is something that I learned from one of my executive directors when I was working uh, in a clinical position was no money, no mission. So there's nothing wrong with having fundraisers, having corporate sponsors, having um, individual sponsors who can afford to write a nice check to pay for an educational program, that doesn't make you bad because with that money, you can provide a higher quality product and touch more lives. And Mm -hmm. if you pay staff what they are worth based upon their education experiences, Licensure certification—you're going to attract and retain the best, and you're going to be able to help people. And yes, we do have in our code of ethics that we are going to uh, donate a certain amount of our time to people who can't afford it. But that does not mean that we are taking an oath of poverty either. So there's mm. nothing wrong with us making. Um, a, a nice living doing what we're doing that does not make us bad people. And then to touch on entrepreneurship because I know that's what you and a large portion of your your audience or your your members uh, comprised of. I'm teaching right now over the summer, a course in activity directors so this is to help people who are in nursing homes or assisted living facilities, in uh, group homes for people with intellectual disabilities and, and similar types of institutions. It is teaching professionals to design, implement, and, and lead, therapeutic activities for their clients. And it involves a treatment plan. It's not just, okay, now it's bingo time or we're gonna watch a video, but we're, and there's nothing wrong with spending time playing bingo, if that's what people enjoy or an occasional video, but these are professional people who are very mindful about the types of activities that they are coming up with for their residents or their clients. And what I'm trying to impress upon my students, because most of them, as many people do, you think right away of the nursing home. And most of the elderly do not go to nursing homes. And we now have this giant bubble that everybody's heard of—the baby boom population, where just the oldest tail on the bell curve of the the uh, baby boom is getting to the age where the they need these types of elder care services. And throughout their lives, they have redefined what it means to be at every stage of life simply because their numbers attract entrepreneurs to meet their needs and desires. And I impress upon my students that they're taking this course at the perfect time because as they finish their education, I really wholeheartedly believe that the folks who are in the baby boom generation, when we get anywhere near the middle of that bell curve and they're living um, extended periods in retirement from 65 to maybe 85, that didn't exist a couple of generations ago. And Mm -hmm. most of them are not gonna wanna go to nursing homes, but they're still going to need helpful therapeutic activities. And I think that there are going to be business opportunities in human services that have never been thought of, much less delivered and people with our background who also are interested in starting a business they have got such a tremendous opportunity right in front of them that in the Mm -hmm. next 10 years so many services are going to be requested that if you are clever and you do needs assessments with with these potential customers or clients, however we we wish to refer to them, uh, they're gonna have a lot of needs that we can help meet in a very professional way and do it in the marketplace and make a good living doing it. And that does not make us bad people because we're taking an entrepreneurial approach to providing services
0: hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love that. I hope people are listening because I love when someone can like spot a trend or they can spot something that's coming in the future. Um, I think that's very valuable to be able to share that um, here with, with everyone. Because like I said, a lot of the audience here is in the transformational coaching industry. And um, wow the fun things we could create. And I look at the activities director and I see some of the parallel because even as a coach, like I have some that are self-love coaches, right? Or self-care coaches, inner healing practitioners, that type of stuff. And between that age of like 65 and 85, Um, are, are these, um, is this, this demographic, are they wanting to move toward more self-actualization or they wanted to go deeper, um, in their self-care or their leisure or their entertainment and what type of, um, programs or courses or things can you design and create to serve that demographic and doing it through the lens of human services, therapeutic um, all of that, I I love that. That makes me excited, <laughs> For, especially when I think about it from um, like the online digital world too, right? Because a lot of these can be served through. And yes, at 65, 85, I think the baby boomers they're not afraid to you know at least log onto the computer and log into one place where they know their fun, leisure, therapeutic, self care, self love, whatever stuff is happening that they can get. Um, that benefit from logging in. Even my grandma is having to learn how to log onto the computer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: she has a property in um, Barbados that's on Airbnb. So my grandma, you got to start logging in. You got to see what's happening. Go see how many views are up there. So yeah, I think this is so fun. Um, I love that you're teaching that and your students are getting that knowledge now. So Beautiful, beautiful stuff. And then speaking to the, um, yeah, you hit something that I had never really thought of about the helping professions being uh, more of a female-dominated industry that, you know, decades ago, it was your husband's, tech, he's said, he's the breadwinner, so you don't have to make that much. Right. <laughs> I never considered that. And that makes a lot of sense. I'll share this. um, And I think I shared with you. I have a beauty agency and I have to do a lot of quoting um, to corporate clients. And I find that people want to, because I'm a female and there's a, we're, you know, this is a service based industry and we're a bunch of females. And then we end up serving these corporate clients who are more male dominated. um, That there are some, and I won't say all, Mm because I have some really great clients. But there are a few that will try to negotiate or lowball you. And you're like, we know how much this service costs. Why are you trying to lowball us? <laughs> and it could very well be that, you know, as a female, they feel more comfortable um, trying to negotiate or talk us down on our pricing. And it has even salaries, right? Um, it's, I don't know the percentages or the, um, the, Correct statistics, but I do know that women get paid less for the same job. And it's one of those things when we get those offers, we can give a woman less than a man, you know? So I'm hoping and I'm just really positive that that can begin to shift and with more conversations like this, because we as women, we have to also be able to stand up and be confident, walk in our own confidence, our self worth. self-esteem and knowing that we are worthy of more right so
1: we could do a whole other podcast just on that on how girls (laughs) are socialized to see themselves as being worth less
0: wow wow that would be a really good one i would love to ask learn more from you on that for sure and i wanted to say that was one of the purposes of connecting with you too is because I I think it's interesting for people that are in the online coaching industry, like I was saying, it can be so jaded and it can get so like, it can feel like an MLM sometimes where the coach is coaching the coach and trying to help the coach make it more money to be more, a better coach. And, you know, it gets, I, I don't like it. Like the coaching industry, do you believe that that falls under the human services like what are your thoughts on that for like life
1: coaching. Absolutely. Um, actually at the college where I teach, um, as, as far as providing, uh, social support to our students, what we do is we've got a very close partnership with, um, Indiana University Uh, and their masters of social work program. And what arrangement I have made with our local campus of Indiana University is each academic year, I host an MSW in their final clinical placement and they are providing life, and we call them our our student life coaches. And Mm. they're there to provide support groups, help people through trauma. You know, they they don't do therapy per se, but they provide therapeutic and supportive Mm. um, services to our students. So it helps improve the quality of life of students and that in turn helps, to, uh, helps those students to continue on and graduate. So for four years, I've been hosting MSW interns as our life coaches. And we've now gotten to the point, um, because my college offers associate's degrees and certificates, but many of my students go on and they get their bachelor's and master's degrees. And I've, I've got the placement for next year's um, life coach and she will now be my third in a row who started as a student of mine as at this an associate degree. And now they're wanting to come back and help other students who are first generation, which we largely are are serving. And uh, they can empathize because that's exactly the experience they went through. They were not Mm -hmm. wealthy. They were not, uh, they didn't have role models like moms and dads who went to college. And now here they are finishing up the last months of their master of social work and they can then become that mentor. So I very much think that life coaching, uh, particularly when it deals with uh, trauma or social support and things like that, as opposed to and there's very much value in in the other forms of life coaching like um, nutrition and weight loss and things like that that's got tremendous value as well and those i think would mm-hmm. probably fit under human services too might have one fit foot in human services and the other foot in uh, physical health but even those two things are intertwined. We know in yep. the research that when we are physically and emotionally happy, those things reinforce each other. So all of that fits under human services. And that makes us a broader profession than social working or just being a counselor and just is not mm-hmm. um, you know, diminishing. But it, yes. we're, we're an umbrella that includes many different professions, and I would like to encourage your, your listeners. You, know, you said that you um, came to know me through the National Organization of Human Services. There, oh, I was on their board of directors when you reached out, and I would strongly encourage folks to visit their website. It's nationalhumanservices.org. They've got lots of resources, educational programs, virtually and face-to-face. They've got memberships for students, uh, clinical uh, staff, as well as educators. And it's just a wonderful resource to people. And it does not just focus on mental health, although that obviously is a big part of Mm -hmm. what they do, but they see the bigger picture and they bring in many of these other perspectives too.
0: That's awesome. I'm sure I'm so glad you said that because that was my next place I was going. I'm like, I really want to encourage, you know, um, my audience, listeners, students, um, <laughs> members, and programs, and all that stuff, because I believe in the transformational work that um, my audience is doing, you know, and it falls under human services. And we have that heart for people and we're serving others. Um, and yeah, the niches are different. It may not be mental health altogether, um, but the inner healing the health, the self-care, the therapeutic. I like, I like that word, we could say therapeutic, it's not therapy, licensed therapy, but it is therapeutic in a mm-hmm. sense, you know? Um, that we're, services that we're offering to others. I will say this, when I, when I graduated, well, the, the last semester that I um, studied at, I was going to Liberty University, getting the Master's in Human Services, I was going back, looking at the tracks I had chose a business track, but I then saw a life coaching track, and I was like, "Where was this when I first started?" <laughs> so I think when I first went into human services, um, almost ten years ago, maybe just maybe it wasn't as broad or as open as it is now, like a decade later, because they were just bringing in those new, you know, those new tracks coming in. So cool that I almost forgot about that until I asked you that question then it like dinged in my head like yeah life coaching does fall under that and I feel like connecting with the organization and professionals is going to cause you to be a better coach right you can fall you can learn about the ethics you can learn about some more therapeutic skills and things of that sort
1: Um, And the networking that you get, yeah, the networking that you get with other professionals is really valuable. And for those who are curious about what does fall under human services, their website has got uh, quite a lengthy list of job titles that they consider being part of human services and they actually have a page dedicated to it's an article uh, by a gentleman who came up with the term human services, and he Ooh. talks about exactly what it is. So I think that that would be very valuable. And uh, if if you don't mind me taking an opportunity for a plug for my college for Anybody who might be interested in uh, taking a course or or completing their degree uh, with me or with anybody else at our our fine college. It's Ivy Tech Community College of Indiana and we provide, of course, on campus uh, instruction, but we have made a transition, which I think was in the making anyway, and COVID kind of accelerated it, where we do have Ivy Online where people can take the the traditional online courses. But I offer from my campus, all of my classes in the format that we call Learned Anywhere. And it's a combination of I will have students in the classroom, and I will have students uh, logged in through Zoom. So they can be anywhere. And so it, you don't have to be somebody from Indiana. You can be from out of state. You can be from out of the country. And you can take a course and if you know they're thinking from our conversation, you know, maybe I'd like to take a, a course with him. You can do that. You don't have to be from Valparaiso where I am. So the, the website, if folks would like to look that up, is ivytech, I-V-Y-T-E-C-H, edu. And then if you want to go straight to our program's website, it's ivytech.edu slash human dash services. And it will go right to our programs website. And then you can select Yeah, that's exactly right. Thank you, Justina. Um, And you can select there's a drop down for the campuses. And if you'd like to take a, a course with me select Valparaiso. I'm the chair here of our program, but we have fine instructors and professors throughout the state. So I don't think that you would be disappointed wherever you went, but you would all be very welcome in our program. And if anybody would like to reach out to me with any questions, my email address is spears 18 at ivytech.edu. Oops, messed that one up.
0: Go oh, up. <laughs> Let me fix it. <laughs> I'm typing in the um, chat box for those that are um, with us live. Also, because I go back and look at these notes after the recording, and I can go back and add it to the podcast description and all of that. I do want to read one of the comments from uh, Michelle. We totally missed her comment. Like, this was almost 40 minutes ago. Oh, no. <laughs> i sorry, Michelle. Um, but Michelle says, amazing story. I will look back at my story and at the people involved and imagine their perspective of the situation. So it. Wonderful. I think that's a great homework assignment <laughs> for all of us. <laughs>
1: Wonderful. Is, um, Thank you, Michelle.
0: Yes. Yes. Thank you so much for that um, comment, Michelle. And yeah, I think it's that's a great, great thing that we can do. Um, I love. We talked about the N O H S. We've talked about Ivy Tech, and uh, we've brought in the entrepreneurial perspective to the um, to the human services world. And we were able to hear your story. And can you tell us, like? From that story, is that what caused you to go into the individual therapy? Is that Was that the next step for you, or what was the next step after, like, you know, getting into your career and all of that?
1: Well, I was never a licensed therapist, but what I did is... At- You know, I was starting to be able to uh, be mature enough to take these other perspectives when I was an undergraduate. So I changed my major. I was originally an education major, and I changed it to social services, and I took a minor in business. So in social services, it was um, psychology, sociology, and social work. And then I went on to graduate school and I got a master's degree in medical sociology. And Mm -hmm. that was a a very systematic study of the social environment's impact on health. And um, it, it really taught me a great deal Uh, it, It helped educate me and open my eyes to my own experience, and then it also made me want to be able to educate those in the health field as to how to deliver in a more positive way a diagnosis and prognosis. Because it really was very good news. You know, when you think that you've got terminal cancer and you find out that you've got Crohn's disease, even in the 80s, when there were very limited options, that should have been a celebration. But it was given to me as, oh, you know, in effect okay, you're going to live, but you're going to have a miserable life. And, you know, that's Mm. not the message that you want to send somebody. Mm -mm. It should be, I've got fabulous news for you. There will be some challenges, but we'll deal with them as they come. But you're going to, you're going to see your children born, you're going to have opportunities to live your life. And, And that's not the way that it was delivered. And at at least I can say with certainty, not the way that it was received. And there's Mm -hmm. been a lot of research published about the influence of the delivery of diagnosis and uh, the eventual course of illness. And I think that that's wow. very valuable information. And for those who are, are interested, and maybe you've got some listeners with Crohn's disease, but Douglas Drossman, he's still practicing and he does uh, studies on the influence of social factors on Crohn's disease and other inflammatory bowel diseases. So it's quite well documented. And for those who have studied the counseling perspectives, this is very gestalt about the interconnectedness of these different realms of your life and how they influence each other.
0: Yes, yes. And what was the the person's name that you said that studied Crohn's disease that the audience may be interested in?
1: Douglas Drossman, D-R-O-S-S-M-A-N. It may have a second N, but I don't think so. I think it's Douglas Drossman with one N. And you got can you. you can look either through Google Scholar or he's even got um, I think it's called the the Drossman Institute. So you can just Google that mm. because he's he was publishing widely when I was in graduate school in the 90s, and he's still practicing and speaking and educating people and uh, hes he was a big influence on my development.
0: Awesome, wow, and I love it. I love the research that you're talking about on the influence of the delivery of diagnosis because immediately in my head, I was like, oh my gosh, the power of our words. And, like, just this, like, we can deliver that diagnosis in a pod, like, a way that shows there's a future, there's still something ahead of you, or we can speak to it where, like, there's no hope, you know, and that, because of the position of that doctor, that really has an influence on people, so the fact that there's already research on that is awesome there's some some sometimes in my head i'm like it'd be so cool to do research on that but nine times out of ten there's probably already (laughs) someone who's thought of it (laughs) the other thing i wanted to ask you now this is just all personally just me i've been considering getting a doctorate's degree Mm -hmm. but we have to do a dissert. what is that like that huge dissertation thing you have to do yes and i'm scared (laughs) i'm like (laughs) i don't want to do that part but I'm just curious, like, how do people, uh, how do I ask this question? Because I know we all have passions and there's things that we want to go deeper on and we want to do more research on. Well, maybe not everybody. I'm a nerd. I like doing research. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, But I would love to do more research. But then again, just like this, where I was like, that would be so cool to do research. Like, How do they determine, I guess they have to, do all the research and make sure they're taking a different angle because you don't want to research the same thing over and over. So that's the part I fear is really coming up with a good enough topic or a topic that's going to have enough impact and then making sure that it hasn't already been done or that. Yeah, those are all the things that go through my head that hold me back from like going for it. So you have anything positive or encouraging,
1: you want to say? Absolutely. (laughs) That should really energize you because you will be contributing in the scholarly conversation that research is. And one chapter of your dissertation is a literature review. So you're dedicating a significant portion of your dissertation. You know, you're going to do the research first, but then when you're writing up your dissertation and at, at the university, you will have a lead professor who guides you through the, the mm. research and the writing of your dissertation. So it's not as though you're gonna be thrown to the wolves and you gotta figure it out all yourself, but mm-hmm. you're gonna um, identify something that's of interest to you. And then you're gonna really dig into the published research and uh, you're gonna look for a hole in the discussion. About that particular topic, and your yeah. research then is going to be addressing that gap in the conversation. Okay. And uh, it's tremendously rewarding, and you know, to build your confidence, what you can do now is you can research and publish a couple articles in peer-reviewed journal journals, and. NoHS has got their own peer-reviewed journal. It's called the Journal of Human Services. And they're collecting um, proposals right now, but they publish annually. And the process that you would go through to write a a journal is gonna be the same process but on a smaller scale than what you would do in your dissertation. Mm-hmm. Because a, a published journal article, you know, they, they have limited space and they wanna have several articles in there. So they're gonna limit them to 12 to 20 pages, you know, including your references pages, but your dissertation is probably gonna be 100 or 200 pages long but now i'm not saying that to freak (laughs) you out but it you know by by going through the process of publishing articles that is the exact same process you're just going to go more in depth in your dissertation and remember your your lead professor is going to be there because you've you've done all of the coursework you've become an ABD, which is all but dissertation. So it means you got all of your doctoral coursework done. At that point, you're approved to submit your proposal for your dissertation and you will work hand in hand with your lead professor. And once it gets ready, you will have a a committee that you'll present your research to and you defend it. And when you defend it, you are then Dr. J. Ah!
0: <laughs> I love how you were saying you will do this and you will do that. Like, you're going to do it. <laughs> I felt that one.
1: <laughs> you caught that, did you?
0: <laughs> I did. I did. I was just like, oh, okay. In my mind, I'm doing this. I'm doing it.
1: Yes, you are. <laughs>
0: but yes, it is definitely a desire of mine. And I love your advice to like, start with, you know, a smaller journal and do some a little bit of research. Um, hopefully I can email you and reach out to you of about course. that and get some more like more handholding on that process. <laughs>
1: any other uh, But
0: I would love to do that. I really do love I love I love researching things. That's what I do. Anytime I put together like a masterclass, look shameless plug. I'm doing a masterclass coming up. It's on desire, delight and desire. I tend to pull in the theology of stuff, so it is a Bible study and a business training. And um, I have like my whole first page is just a bunch of links of different research that I've done. Cause I like to be able to pull from different places and hear what um, the experts are saying. And then also, like you said, find like that gap. That was the key thing that you said to me that really inspired me was like, oh, so it's okay for what I'm doing now where I'm looking, gathering all this information and then finding that little gap in there of a piece where my voice can be heard as well, you know or um, based on the research that we've gathered, other people's voices can be heard because they haven't gathered that research yet, right? That's right. So um, beautiful, beautiful stuff. You're so encouraging and so inspiring. I love it. Thank you. Um, I know we have gone. <laughs> you're welcome. We've gone a little longer than expected, but that's what happens when we we get to get. I think we did this the first time. We went a little bit over. We did. And um, we do, yes. <laughs> We do have Michelle in the room and you have been with us the whole time. So I'm not sure if you're busy, you might, you could just be a a fly on the wall, busy doing something else where you can't actually respond. Um, But even the messenger, if you just wanna let us know if you have a question, if you have some feedback for us, uh, we would love to, um... oh, Michelle's so sweet. like 6 minutes ago she's like you can do it justina dr j that's <laughs> I right i love it thank you thank you for um thank you for encouraging me and lifting me up like that i love it michelle so again if you do have a question or um okay she says listening and working very good and i will look for um the podcast So um, yeah, look for the podcast, get connected with NOHS. I will definitely be encouraging all the people that come through my way (laughs) to get connected with the organization for sure. Great. And look for um, Don at ivytech.edu. I think that's, did I say that right? Yes. (laughs) Okay, awesome. (laughs) All right, so we are gonna bring this to a close. Don, did you have anything else you wanted to, um, like any last final words you wanted to say? I know our topic has been how your personal story can shape your career. I feel like we've talked about that and so much more. So there's so much more value given. Um, Did you have any final words?
1: Um, Just one word of caution to folks because while our personal stories can be very, very valuable to us, you need to make sure that you have done the healing and growth before you get submerged and surround yourself with clients who are going through the same thing. Because while you have that unique uh, view and perspective by having gone through it, if it's still very, very raw to you, you're not going to be effective and you're going to burn out. So it's really important for people in human services to at least occasionally check in with a therapist themselves because you never want to engage in uh, counter transference, which is where you turn your sessions with your clients into meeting your own needs. So you always wanna make sure that you get yourself healthy and you've put things in perspective so that you can be helpful and not be uh, reliving the trauma and kind of being emotionally in the same place as your clients as they're sharing their story because you're not going to be of help to them and you're not going to last long. So you have to get yourself right before you can help others.
0: Yes, that was so good. Like Michelle said, so good, such good advice, a great um, last nugget to leave our audience with Um, something that one of my past coaches said to me, which is along the lines of what um, you're saying is that we should not be sharing or creating content cause you know, we're in the digital coaching world. Uh, we shouldn't be sharing or creating content from our wounds. We should be doing that from, um, I think she I can't remember the right word if it was from the scar or the scab something cause it's healed, right? When it's, something is healed, you have a scar instead of actually sharing from the womb that's still open. So I think that goes into a good alignment with what you were just saying. And even adding to that is, yes, have your own mentor, have your own therapist, have your own person that you can work through those things with. And yeah, uh, the work that I do through mind-body work, um, inner healing practitioner situations and all that beautiful stuff, I have my own, like the exact same Mm -hmm. protocols that I, um, excuse me, that I teach within the certification program, I also work with people that do that same thing. They help me, my husband, my children, because my hus- when me and my husband are going through stuff, it definitely affects me in my business. So I I have to make sure that the, the whole family, we all get care, we all get support, so that, <laughs> it's gonna be a little selfish, so my husband can act right. The kids can act right. Then I can act right. Now I'm just joking. <laughs> we're all in it together. That's the point, that we're all getting help and service as a family so that when we go out into our circles and our spheres, that we can serve people better.
1: So. And here okay. we are right back to systems where we started.
0: Yes, it's so beautiful. How intertwined things are. I love it. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Instagram at soulfullyalignedyou. If something we shared encouraged you, shifted your mindset, or caused you to take action, it would be so nice if you left us a review. Your review helps this podcast to show up for more multi-passionate mompreneurs of faith just like you.